All right, we are live. Good afternoon to all the viewers. You are now tuned into Siren Sundays. What's splashing? I'm your host, Sandra the Siren, and this episode is proudly sponsored by Science and Perspective because we all need a little more science and a lot more perspective. Today's episode, we have the wonderful Dr. Megan Davis with us from the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. I always feel like oceanographic is one of those tricky words um, from FAU. So welcome so much to the show, Megan. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Nishanti. It's wonderful to be here. I am a research professor at Florida Atlantic University at Harbor Branch Oceanographic. And I am a aquaculturist and a marine scientist. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of your experience? Like, how did you get to work in Queen Conk aquaculture? Well, it's interesting because I actually met the Queen Conk for the first time when I was a teenager in the Bahamas. And I was introduced um, to the Queen Conk by the fishermen in the Bahamas. And I fell instantly in love with the Queen Conk. And I wanted to be a conch farmer from that day on. And so all my focus has been um, on conch farming. And after I got my bachelor's degree, I went down to the Turks and Caicos. And I worked in a small hatchery there. And then I was the co-founder and the chief scientist of the Caicos Conch Farm the, um, uh, on Providenciales. And then after that, I came back to the state. And I continued my, my studies. Um, I did my PhD um, in the Exumas at Leesocking Island, and I have done quite a bit of work um, on and off throughout the years um, in the Bahamas, and especially the latest one was in 2019 um, when I worked down in Mariah Harbor Key National Park with BNT and with um, Catherine Booker and also with um, Lester Giddings and, and other partners. So I have a very strong connection to Conk and the Bahamas. That's exciting to hear. Can you tell us a little bit about what is aquaculture and are there any differences between typical aquaculture and Queen Conk aquaculture? Yeah, that's a great question. So aquaculture is can be both freshwater and it can also be saltwater or what we call marine. And so it's the farming of plants and animals in, in saltwater. It can be uh, in tanks, it can be in ponds, in the ocean. And so conch aquaculture is actually mariculture, um, which means marine aquaculture. And it's also done in the, in the, on, on land, in, in a laboratory. And also it's done uh, in the ocean as well. That's exciting. So can you tell us about how you farm and raise these conch? Can you like kind of take us through this process of raising your conch? Well, I'd love to do that, and it just so happens that we're in the Novoavo, Puerto Rico, Queen Conch Hatchery, uh, which is located in the Fishing Association uh, with the fishers here in Puerto Rico. And it's a partnership uh, aquaculture hatchery with Harbor Branch and also with my colleague, uh, Raimundo Espinoza, who's with Conservation Conciencia. And then with the uh, Fishing Association and the president of the association and the fishers, it's a funded project with um, NOAA Fisheries. And so we've just started our first season in June. And I'd love to show you around the hatchery since we're here. Um, I would love to see it. I'm sure our guests will too. Okay, so let's start. Let's 
over here. And what I'm going to show you here are the eggs. This is the egg incubator. And if you look very closely, you'll be able to see the eggs inside the containers. And the eggs take three to four days until they're ready to hatch. So the fishers bring them in from the ocean. They just bring in a very small amount because every egg mass has a half a million eggs. So we don't want, we can't hatch them all. So we leave some with the mother, conch, and we bring in a small amount and hatch them here. Once they're ready to hatch, and they actually hatch at nighttime, we end up putting them in, in a tank. And I'm gonna show you here, our larval tank. And you can see the eggs are inside the tank. And they're gonna hatch tonight. And what we found out is they hatch at nine o'clock at night. And that's when it's dark <laughs> and they can emerge out of the eggs. And so hundreds of thousands of conch will hatch tonight in the hatchery. We have wow. two masses ready. And so if you look behind me, these are the larval tanks. And we have five of them. So we can raise uh, lots of villagers during the season, during the aquaculture, or during the breeding season, which happens to be about April until around September, October which is the same in the Bahamas as well. Nice. I'm gonna take you over and show you that where we grow the food. So we have the microalgae here that we feed them. And we also have some that are growing in these really tall, long, long, long tubes. Wow. <laughs> and so we start off with, um, with test tubes and then we scale it up over time. And I have one more place to show you in here. We're very excited because we have a metamorphosis happening right here in the hatchery in the Guavo. And we have several hundred conks that are being cued by their seagrass blades, which is their natural cue in the wild. And then down here we have, I hope you can see them, yeah, <laughs> they're so, so small. Those are tiny little two-week-old conks that have just metamorphosed. So that's, that's the life cycle in a hatchery. Mm -hmm. But um, our goal is to grow the conch until they're this size here, which is about uh, seven centimeters, a few mm -hmm. inches. And they'll take one year to grow to that size. And then we'll put them out into the ocean for restoration purposes. Awesome. That is so exciting. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned, one, that the conch hatch at 9 p.m. So hilarious. I think that's the time babies need to go to bed. But <laughs> I, that, it's actually really interesting to hear. And even, I know there's always been this misconception that a lot of people, especially Bahamians, don't realize that conch have a breeding season. And, and you know, there's been a lot of this, like, back and forth on whether or not in the Bahamas we should kind of adhere to also having a conch season, a queen conch season, like with some of the other fisheries. So it's nice to know that conch actually do have a certain time of year where they're, they need that time to breed and then reproduce and have their young. So how successful do you see this process for, for the saving of the queen conch? You know, we've seen a lot of articles come out talking about, you know, in 15 years, there will be no more queen conch. Do you think that this is the solution or just one of them? Yes, um, Ashanti, this is a very important discussion to have. And I would say that aquaculture is one of many solutions that need to be put together. And so the most important thing is that we have to 
um, there's no one easy answer to bringing back the comp or to replenishing the comp to the numbers that we that we remember. Um, and so the aquaculture allows us the opportunity to grow comp for restoration, but it also allows us this opportunity to do conservation, education, and awareness. Right. And so having the, the fishers in the community, um, for instance, here in Puerto Rico, come and visit and learn more about the comp, it also helps to understand how long the comp takes to reach maturity. And so I would I would definitely go back to um, what you were saying, that it's one of the, the multitude of, of solutions that are needed for us all to work together. It's really a, a together um, effort that we need to do. Right. And so as far as comparing um, comp in the wild to conch and hatcheries, what is the difference in the success rate of these um, hatch hatching of these conch? Yeah, so it's really interesting. In aquaculture, they have no predators. So right. essentially, you, the survival increases considerably. So in the wild, the female lays about nine to ten times a season, which is like close to is that close to 5 million eggs um, every year. And so out of those, only less than 1% survive, which what she's trying to do is make sure that her and her mate survive, essentially. So in a hatchery, we actually can increase our survival considerably um, by being able to raise much more of the, of the eggs that hatch. And the percentage depends on the size of the hatchery and, and the number of comps that can be grown in that hatchery. So, um, but the percentage really does increase. The one thing that is most important, though, is that going back to the, the small comps here, the hatchery comps that are raised here, we need to make sure that they're raised to be similar to the wild comps in terms of being able to put we have to have the behavior to eat and to bury and to protect themselves against predators. So um, that's one of the things that we'll be working on um, during our studies here. Awesome. And I know earlier you mentioned that you use the seagrass, which is also their natural cue in the wild, to be their cue here. So does that mean a conch in the wild would be floating around for maybe like as long as how long, like about a year until it actually gets that cue to metamorphosize? Well, Yes, yeah, so the larvae take three weeks to go through metamorphosis, or to get ready for metamorphosis. Okay. And then what they do is they have this really amazing behavior. It's called a swim crawl. So here they are swimming around those larvae with their beautiful lobes and their shell. They've already developed a shell at this stage. And they go to the bottom, the, the sandy seagrass, and they touch down. And they say, oh, is this where I want to metamorphose? <laughs> or not? And if it's not the right place, then they'll swim back up. And then they'll find another place. And so some of the studies that we did at Lee Stocking Island in the Azumas was to understand more about why the nurseries are where they are and how the comps decide to choose which place is the best place um, for metamorphosis. So just from my curiosity, um, I feel like I have so many questions. And viewers, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot them in the comments. But how far would you say, as far as from the conch starts to metamorphosize after its cue till straight through its adult life, like how far is its actual range? Like from being in that seagrass, do you find that as they're adults, they travel very far from when they originally started? They will. They'll start in the shallow seagrass area, and then they'll migrate 
and they start that migration at about two years of age when they're still, I believe you call them rollers, um, <laughs> so they don't have the lips yet. And then as soon as they start, you know, with their flared lip, they're typically in deeper water, like a, a lot of the um, adult conch are found in deeper water. You can still find some adults in the seagrass beds for sure. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the more typical places are in the in the sandier coral rubble, nice uh, wave and or not so much wave energy, but good current flow in that right. area. And so I know one of the things. Um, and again, I have so many questions, right? One of the things that uh, we talk about here in the Bahamas is, is that flared lip, right? That's when you know it's an adult. But as recent studies have shown, you want to get to that lip thickness. And so oftentimes I've heard fishermen kind of argue that, oh, well, you know, this, the, even though the conch shell is thin, it's still big. And you'll see a smaller conch that does have that lip thickness. Is that is that just because like how humans are tall and short? Are conchs kind of similar in that way? So that's the interesting thing about the queen conch because the shell length can be very different depending on the habitat. So, and depending on how, how fast they're growing. But what I found in aquaculture is that they have a biological clock. And so when they reach about three years of age, no matter what size they are, they'll start forming their lip. Wow. So size is not a good indication the better indication is exactly what you're talking about, the size, the, the flare of the lip and the thickness of the lip, because that gives the indication of the maturity and that the conch has had a chance to reproduce. So, so length is not as important as the lip thickness. Awesome. So, and even when it comes to, um, you say after about a year when they get seven centimeters, that's when you'll then release them into the wild. Do you find that conch in the wild are maybe not as big as the ones that are grown in the hatchery? Like when they hit like one years old? Actually, that's a really interesting question because that's something that we've been studying. And in a hatchery, sometimes they grow slower um, because they may not have all the food that they want. In the wild, they can graze all the time on a wide variety of different um, epiphytes, which is in their, in their seagrass beds. So in the hatchery, what we're trying to do is make them food that's similar to what they have in the wild. And so it's kind of a combination of, of algae, but we also make like a gel diet with some seaweed in it. And so what we're aiming for though, is to make sure that they do grow as fast as the ones in the wild and that they produce those spines, those spines that help them with protection. So that's our aim is to grow them as fast as the ones in the wild. Okay, so we do have a question coming in from YouTube. What causes the lip thickness of the conch? So, thank you for that question. The, the, the conch forms the lip, and it no longer can continue to make the world. So it forms the lip. So mm -hmm. what's happening over time is it continues to lay down more and more lip over time. And you'll see as they get really thick lips, these conch can sometimes be like 20, 30, 40 years old. And um, I remember that a term in the Bahamas is called the Samba conch, right? The really old yeah. conch. Yeah. And so they're just laying down lip. And sometimes as they get older, their lip actually erodes away. Just mm -hmm. the wear and tear of moving around on the sea floor. And so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the forming of the conch shell? I know I mentioned to you behind the scenes a bit earlier that I've heard someone say, oh, conch find their shell rather than grow it. So we've always been taught, yeah, well, conch 
they absorb calcium carbonate of the ocean. How much of that is affected by the ocean and how much of that is affected by their diet? Right. So in the Caribbean, it's, um, it's very high, well, it's high temperature and high calcium carbonate, right? We have um, great calcium carbonate. So we have a lot of calcium in the water. And so what's happening, and I'm going to show you this tiny little shell. Little shell, right? And if you look at the very, very tip, if we were looking at it using a microscope, if we look at that very, very, very tiny tip, that would be the larval shell. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is it just continues to use its mantle. And I think you know it as the conch red, um, right? And, yeah. and so it uses its mantle and it helps to form that shell and it, it hatches with a shell. It's actually in its egg stage, it has its shell already. And mm -hmm. it just keeps picking up that calcium from the ocean and using its mantle to form the shell. It's really quite phenomenal. Nice. And so we did have a hello from uh, Megan Hales to you. <laughs> from oh, nice. Port Perry. Yeah. oh <laughs> lovely. Um, so again, viewers, if you have any questions for Megan, let us know through the comments. So in just kind of talking about the conchs growing, um, the diet that you said you give them is some of the macroalgae. And I noticed when you showed us the tanks, you had the, the very large tank and then you had some of the little smaller test tubes. Why do they move? Why do you have to put them in those larger tanks? So what happens um, growing um, microalgae is that it multiplies logarithmically. So like if it starts with two cells one day, then it's four, and then it's eight, and 16, 32, et cetera. Yeah. And so it outgrows, it, it outgrows its vessel, its tube. So we start in the test tube, and then we add the test tube to a flask. And then we add that flask to a bigger flask, and then that bigger flask to like a big five-gallon jug. And so it allows it to grow more cells in a given amount of space. And depending on the number of pumps we have will depend on how much microalgae. But we always have microalgae growing all the time because it takes anywhere from six to ten days until it's ready to feed. So right. we always have like maybe seven to ten flasks that are in different stages. Yeah. Getting ready to feed. And so is that, do you also grow the seagrass that you use to cue, or do you just get that after the eggs have hatched? Yes, we went down to the water's edge of the fishing association and okay. we waited in the seagrass. Now we don't pull the seagrass blades off the seagrass plant. We take the detrital blades, those are the brown ones that are falling off. And they have all these wonderful little epiphytes on them. So we don't, so we're essentially just taking, we're combing our fingers through the seagrass just to pick up the, the tridal brown blades and then we bring them in so that the conch have them as a cue. Oh, that's awesome. So we do have another question coming in from YouTube. What makes conch culture so difficult? And I'm assuming they mean by conch aquaculture. I know we've heard a lot in the Bahamas that you know conch are one of the hardest types of fishery species to kind of do this with. So what does make them that like that much more difficult than the typical fish species? Well, I'd actually say that it has some of the same um, same difficulties of any species that we grow um, in aquaculture. But what we know about conch is that we know the life cycle, and that's the most important thing you have to learn with any aquaculture, is what's the natural life cycle. 
this is really well known. Um, you know, I've been working with the species now for 40 years, so, and, and there's a lot of other um, scientists throughout the years that have also worked with the team comp. So I would say that the technology is well established. I think what makes it difficult is that they, um, they take a long time to grow. You know, they take almost four years. And so some of the fish species only take maybe a year to a year and a half to grow. So that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind is, um, you know, how to how to get the cycle going so that you always have comps um, that are ready to release or ready to grow um, for seafood. And so over the time that you've been working in comp, which you said has been, wow, 40 years, um, do you has there been a lot of changes in the methodology in the conch aquaculture from around the beginning when you said you were interning to now as you've been working in managing hatcheries? Yeah, so I would say that um, there's more choices available for filtration, for tank sizes. Um, we now use LED lights instead of fluorescent lights so we can save energy. Um, and and some, some practices have gotten a little simpler um, out of necessity. Um, over the years, I've, this is my 10th hatchery that I've been working on and developing. And so over the years, Sometimes out of necessity, we've had to try something different and it actually ends up working. And so we can adapt that into the process and it might be that much simpler to grow the palm. Oh, science, trial and error. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. So we do have another hello from YouTube. And we also have another question coming in from YouTube. So is it the epiphytes on the seagrass blades that actually act as the metamorphosis, metamorphosis <laughs> cue? Um, and thanks for the question, you're welcome. Um, so yeah, is it actually the epiphytes or is it the seagrass itself? So I think it's a mixture, but mostly it's the epiphytes because the epiphytes are, are benthic diatoms, which is a type of microalgae, so, or a type of phytoplankton that lives on the, on the benthos on the bottom. And so that's, that's the conch's first food. Okay. And so the conch's going to say, oh my gosh, this habitat is great for me. I'm going to settle here and I'm going to start eating right away. So it's a very interesting um, process to think about that. You know, we're all drawn, I mean, all animals are drawn towards their food. I think people as well, right? So, yeah, <laughs> it smells um, good. <laughs> so it's, it's, it really is uh, the epiphyte. But it might also be a, a, um, it might also be a tactile type of thing mm -hmm. as well. Like when they're touching the seagrass blade, they can say, oh, this feels, this feels good, this feels secure, this is where I want to be. Right. And so as you said before, conch, um, as they're in their larval state, they will constantly go up and down. Um, what was the term you said that was again? It's a swim crawl. Swim, swim crawl. Yeah. yeah. Which is really cool because I think a lot of people just imagine that when the conch lays its egg mass, they hatch and they just hang around there. But they actually go through a lot in their first couple of weeks of life, just constantly avoiding predators as they go up and down. Because not, we're not the only ones that like to eat conch and there are things that want to eat them in their different stages. Yeah, so they really do have such a challenge, right, to just hatch out that egg and then make their way to life. And I think what you're also saying is so important is that seagrass habitats are so crucial and so important in this life stage. And I think even in the Bahamas, a lot of people, when they see seagrass, it's like, ew, it's this like this dark spot in the ocean that I don't want to see there. But really, it's such a crucial habitat for conch and a lot of other marine species. So I'm, I'm, it's really interesting to hear that that's one of those cues that actually helps them start life, really. So. Yeah. yeah. And 
I think also to look at the benefits that the Kong gives to the seagrass, you know, as they're grazing and cleaning the seagrass. And that was one of the studies that we did in Mariah Harbor Key National Park in 2019. We um, um, our partnership project looked at um, the grazing effects of conch on on seagrass and how important they are to you know to help with photosynthesis of the seagrass and the carving sink of seagrass. So they also play a critical role in, in the life cycle of, of the seagrass as well. See, that's so exciting. I think we do kind of forget that, that life is a cycle, right? Like everything has its part to play. And while the seagrass helps conch grow, conch also helps seagrass grow. And so it's just, this is just a cycle. And I'm excited to hear that the Bahamas has some really good habitat to start in, right? Um, and I know you said you've done work in the Bahamas before. Do you still have ongoing work in the Bahamas, or is you just mainly based in Puerto Rico right now? Well, it's exciting to share with you, the viewers, that I do have um, two projects that um, that we're working on that we're just starting to um, get everything organized. Um, exciting. So I have one. Um, working with BNT, the Bahamas National Trust, um, with Jewel up in Grand Bahama. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll be doing some work with the fishers in Queenstown and looking at conch ranching. And so that's very exciting. It is. And um, also with the Bahamas National Trust with Kathleen Booker down in the Brian Harvey Key National Park, we're um, also expanding a project um, to have a small hatchery there. Um, and so, uh, that will also be an education, restoration, conservation hatchery, and it will be on on wheels. It will be mobile. <laughs> so oh, that's um, uh, So these are projects that are in discussion, and um, we're working closely with um, Lester Giddings um, and, of course, uh, everybody at the Bahamas National Trust, and um, and then the local community. I mean, community is so important. You know, the local, local, the local people in the, in the community and the fishers and everybody that is very interested in the King Kong. Yeah, definitely. Community is definitely one of the most important things when it comes to conservation, which definitely brings you to the point of the discussion. So how can people get involved with working in Queen Conk aquaculture? Are there internships available? Are, are there ways that people who maybe want to study Queen Conk aquaculture, how can they get involved with some of this work? Whether it be in the Bahamas or wherever the hatcheries are. Right. Right. So we are in the process. Um, my goal um, and the team that I work with and those that are um, interested in getting um, involved, the goal is to have a conch farm in every Caribbean island. So, <laughs> so you know, right now we, um, you know, we've been talking about the Bahamas, we've been talking about Puerto Rico, there's also a hatchery that I've been um, helping with down in Curacao. And um, there's other interests in uh, Jamaica and uh, other places in the Caribbean. So, we are in the process of designing an online course, um, like a hands-on online course called Econ. And so it's gonna be available for people to, to learn about how to grow conch. And then a lot of our information about Queen Conch aquaculture is on our website, which is conchaquaculture.org. And I think the viewers would find it really interesting how to get involved, um, learning more about um, what, you know, what we're doing, what our current projects are. And then I also, I see you have posted my Instagram, which is um, our lab Instagram, which is Queen Talk 2020. So 
I, I like to post about what we're doing and, and uh, what we're doing in the hatchery. And so I welcome, I welcome um, people to, to uh, get involved with us and to ask good questions and see how they can um, uh, further along our mission and vision. That's part of it. Exactly, and I think it's really cool that you are launching that online course. Is that going to be something that's only available to people that have a background, like or a degree in marine science, or can people who are maybe just have that interest and may not, you know, have the degree? Because that's something that they'd also be able to get involved in. We are hoping to make it available for any um, anybody with any any different background. You know, so it does. You don't have to come. You have to come with a passion and um, a desire to want to, you know, work with comms um, or learn more about comms. So really, it's going to be open to everyone where we have, um, what we're going to do first is do beta testing to make okay. sure everything works. And so we hope to do that next year. And then we'll start to launch it so it will be uh, a larger. But we'll continue to, to share information always. Um, so um, it won't be just limited to to the course, but the course is going to be fun. It's, it's, uh, it's great. Yeah, and you guys do share a lot. I, I follow your Instagram, as you know, and I think if you're not following that lab on Instagram, please go and follow Queen Conk 2020 right now on Instagram because you see the coolest little videos and images of the conch as they hatch and kind of go through their life cycle. So thank you for putting that out there because I think a lot of people don't know what a conch looks like before it has this fully formed shell and it has all these lobes and it's just the coolest thing to follow. So thank you for actually sharing that and putting that information out there. And I look forward to seeing, you know, this is e-conch go live and having more people actually interested in the life cycle and the raising of conch, the farming of conch, aquaculture, all of those great things. Um, but before we close out, do you have any final thoughts for our viewers? Maybe any inspiration that you might have learned along your way in this conch aquaculture? Yeah, um, thanks for that. I, I, I think that the thing that really stands out for me is that all these years that I've been growing queen conch and I've looked at you know thousands and millions of conch over my years, I still get so inspired by them. Like they, every day they still teach me. But those those that I'm working with and those that are um, that are training with me as well, I learn so much from the perspective that they bring and the questions that they ask. And so it's really an evolution of um, of conch aquaculture. And you know, you asked me earlier if if there's new things, I think the newness comes from from more people getting involved and more people uh, participating in the, the community awareness and everything, and that, that helps to really grow the awareness and the process, and, and I learn from that as well. So that's part of my inspiration is for people to continue to, um, you know, to ask questions, be curious, and I think the other thing that I'd like to share is that, you know, I fell in love with the conch when I was, um, you know, in my teenage years. And I knew I wanted to be a conch farmer, so I, felt very, I feel very fortunate that I was given that gift of curiosity and of want back then so that I could continue to pursue my passion. So um, for, for those that are looking to pursue their passion, I really encourage you to stay on track with that. 
How beautiful is that? You, you fell in love with the conch as a teenager, and you're still working with conch today. Um, we do have, I think this is going to be my favorite comment ever in the show. Ah, uh, hey, mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's our son. Awesome. Uh, hi, Daniel. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much. And the final question, and I feel like I'm going to know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What is your favorite sea creature and why? <laughs> oh my gosh, Lashanti. <laughs> I, know. I have to say the Queen Conch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. This has been a real pleasure. Really nice. Thank you so much for hosting Siren Sundays. And thank you so much for being on the show. And you definitely are one of my supporters. I do see when you share and you like the post. So I appreciate you for finally being able to come on the show. I'm looking forward to watching your journey and your work. Um, I'd like to thank all our viewers for watching. Um, thank you for riding the Siren Sunday's wave with me. And a great thanks to our sponsor, Science and Perspective, because we all need a little bit of science and we all need a lot more perspective. <laughs> so thank you guys for tuning in to another episode.